Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me as always, he is the man who plays Earl Ball, not in the Goldbergs, but in Schooled, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. I'm. Uh, this is too ridiculous. And So anyway, I play the same character in the Goldbergs and in Schooled, Earl Ball. I'm a principal in the Goldbergs and in Schooled. It's 10 years later, but I'm on the Board of Education. However, do you, do you look the same or do they try to age you up in any no, way? No, no. I look exactly the same because this business ages me up, David. I just mm. automatically look older. My clothes do not age. I wear exactly <laughs> the same shirt, pants, and tie on the Goldbergs as I wear on school. Like this guy, Earl Ball, he doesn't even buy a new tie. And and this is how pathetic it is. I'm doing school... Uh, Boy, I was doing schooled one morning before I did one day at a time, one of those 545 calls. And in the pocket of my suit were script sides for the Goldbergs. So I had the confidence of knowing that not only am I wearing, I'm wearing the same clothes for both shows, but they are not washing or laundering or dry cleaning my clothes as I go from one to the other. Well, uh, it's the magic of Hollywood, and it is something that we're going to be discussing a little bit on today's stories. Uh, but you know, Stephen, I had the chance to visit you recently. Oh, God, actually, that's we true. Uh, I was down in LA uh, because we filmed some uh, video versions of your stories for our, our new YouTube channel. And depending on what time this podcast is released, that uh, those videos are either live or will be live soon at YouTube.com/slash Tobofiles. Uh, that's youtube.com slash Tobofiles. And, you know, one of the things that was so impressive about your dining room is there's just bookshelves everywhere. <laughs> your, your, uh, your wife, Anne, showed me this huge set of encyclopedias. Oh. And she said, I said, like, why, why are you keeping these encyclopedias? No one needs encyclopedias anymore. And she says, the reason I keep these encyclopedias is because this is the closest thing I got to a wedding ring from Stephen when uh, uh, he proposed. This is, Which I thought was, uh, yeah, that was very This is as close to online shaming as I've gotten, David. Now, listen, <laughs> about those encyclopedia, the truth about the encyclopedia, Anne lies. She's a liar. What, what really happened was on one of our first dates, Anne said that she didn't want diamond or jewels. She's the kind of girl that always wanted an encyclopedia, but no guys ever, ever understood that. And so... I did it as sort of a joke. It was a romantic joke. She told me one evening that most of the people she dated didn't understand her, that she didn't want jewels. She preferred a set of encyclopedia. So I surprised her. The encyclopedias have become a lot less romantic as we've had to haul them around to our various addresses over the years. When we had children, so did the encyclopedia. Britannica started sending out yearbooks at $45 a pop. It took me 20 years to get my cancellation request to the proper department. By that time, it was too late. Anne and I had books on bees, black holes, mushrooms, snakes, stars, horses, werewolves. We had books written in French, books written in German, books written in Greek and Latin. We don't speak Greek and Latin. We had books on flying saucers, medieval poetry, Zen Buddhism. It's all very romantic. The trouble with romance is that it collects dust. Being a perpetual student means eventually you will fill your bookshelves. In college, I handled this with some boards I scavenged from a construction yard site propped up on beer cans. If I needed to extend my library, I bought a six-pack. If I bought more books, I just drank more beer. You can't do this when you grow up and have children sends out the wrong message about drinking and reading. When you're an adult, the solution for almost everything is to hire someone else to do it for you. If that doesn't solve the problem, you buy more furniture. Anne and I bought a pine bookcase and put it in the hallway. And then we bought another bookcase and put it in the guest bedroom. And then we bought one for the kitchen and then one behind the piano and then two by the front door. And within a year, our home looked like a furniture store in Vermont. Once we filled the extra bookcases, we stacked books horizontally on top of other books. And then we started making piles. 
on bedside tables, on the floor, on infrequently used living room chairs. The cats loved this. They thought we were installing a new type of launching pads. Anne couldn't take it anymore. Her motto has always been, if you can't get rid of a problem, organize it. She got a library program and cataloged everything. 4,000 books. It took two years. But now I know the book of Hebrew verbs is in the study behind my desk in Bay 3, Shelf 4, lying horizontally on top of two copies of the book of Isaiah. Now, all this could be made simpler by throwing away the book of Hebrew verbs. But the problem is, I can't. I remember the day I bought it. It was during my two-month period of silence before and after my throat surgery. A growth on my vocal cord robbed me of my voice. It was a time of great fear. I was afraid for my life, my family, my career. So I started taking Hebrew classes at the University of Judaism to make myself believe I was still moving forward somehow instead of drifting to the bottom of the river of life. My only forms of communication were mime and my pen and notepad. I wrote all the time. It was particularly irritating at delicatessens. It's very hard to mime corned beef on rye. Hold the Russian dressing. Waitresses were particularly unsympathetic when I started to write what must have seemed like a novella on my notepad to ask for a regular Coke. But not Anne. Annie had endless patience. She even went a step further. She gave me a little brass bell to ring whenever I needed her. I'd ring it, and she would drop whatever she was doing and come to my aid. Pause for a footnote. I still keep that bell at my desk as a monument to Anne's care for me in my darkest hours, and I even ring it occasionally just to keep her on her toes. I use my pad and pen to ask for help from the man at the House of David Jewish bookstore. Very sweet guy. Sincere, he didn't ask why I couldn't talk. He didn't care. He only cared that I cared about Hebrew verbs. He was passionate because I was passionate. He said, Hebrew verbs are tricky. There's only one way to learn them. It's the way I learned them in the yeshiva when I was a boy. Take this book. Study them. Drill them. Eventually you will learn. So I bought the book, and I failed on all counts. It wasn't that I didn't study, drill, and learn. I think I did. It's just I couldn't remember what I studied, drilled, and learned. Hebrew verbs remain a mystery, and I'm fine with that. If life has no mystery, you're asking the wrong questions. The book of verbs was also proportionately challenging. It didn't fit anywhere. It's very, very long. So it was the first book we had to go horizontal. I like the look of it made me feel like I was in an Ingmar Bergman movie. So, I can't move the book of Hebrew verbs. Whenever I see it, I'm reminded that even when times are bad, we can aspire to be better. I'm reminded of the kindness of the man in the bookstore. And I can't throw that away any more than I can learn Hebrew verbs. Besides, it's been cataloged. There was no turning back from books It wasn't just the enjoyment of reading. It took becoming a hoarder to realize that our library doesn't just represent knowledge sought. Anne and I have forgotten a lot of what we read. Our shelves hold entire sections of our lives. Each book tells the story of when we bought it and when we read it, where we were and who we were. Over there is Moby Dick. Dining room, east wall, bay two, third shelf from the top. I read that when I had prostatitis. Bleak House, in the study, north wall, bay four, second shelf from the top. I read Bleak House when I had the flu in Paris. The little German woman who ran the hotel brought me soup and dry toast every day while Anne went out with her tourist maps to see her favorite stained glass windows. At the end of the week, we checked out. I thanked Anne for asking the woman at the desk to look in on me. Anne had no idea what I was talking about. I went down to the front desk and I asked the little German woman why she came to my room and why she came with soup. She gave me a little smile and said, 
I could tell when you two checked in you were in love. And when your wife went out with her map to look at the sights alone, I knew you had to be sick, so I thought a little food might make you feel better. And that is why we are not doomed. I read The Accidental Tourist when Beth and I were breaking up. (laughs) That is not the best choice. Reading The Accidental Tourist during a breakup is like watching Deliverance before you go on a camping trip. The book is about the end of a relationship leading our protagonist to having a total mental collapse. My psychiatrist recommended it. I think my love of books came from my mother. When I was little, Mom used to drop off my brother Paul and me at the library while she did chores. Paul and I roamed up and down the aisles, (laughs) annoying the grown-ups. We pulled books off of the shelves at random. Paul told me to be sure to put them back in the exact place where I got them. He showed me the card catalog. He explained the Dewey Decimal numbers. I turned around and looked at the main room of the library. There were hundreds of books It was beyond my imagination. Not only that people could write so many books, but that other people could put them in order. After I understood the enormous amount of effort that went into a library, I was more selective in my reading material. I focused on dinosaur books. They usually had lots of pictures and big type. The greatest book in my world was the Life magazine special edition called The World We Live In. This book had it all. Dinosaurs to spaceships with Gila monsters in between. The world we live in could occupy me for hours, and it stood up to the scrutiny of multiple viewings. I would be deep in the study of a picture of a western diamondback rattlesnake when Paul would not run, but walk as quickly as allowed in a library and whisper, I found a new Howard Pease. My brother loved mysteries, especially books by Howard Pease, The Jinx Ship, Lost Cargo, The Heart of Danger, just the titles carried me away. I was certain that one day I would read them. At this point in my life, I could read, just not too many words at a time. I needed pictures to dilute the experience. One day when my mother stopped at the library, she didn't drop us off like usual. She walked in with us. Mom took us to the front desk and asked to speak to the librarian. I was sure we were going to get into trouble. The girl working there went back into the office and came out with an older woman who smelled like mothballs. Mom whispered, I'd like to get my boys library cards. My heart started beating hard. I remember the librarian smiling and handing the pink form to my mother. Mom filled out the card. The librarian said, Stephen, write your name on that line. She pointed I printed. What does this mean? I asked. It means you could take any book you like home for two weeks. Some books are very popular. You could only take them home for one week, but I don't think you'll have to worry about that. I wasn't so sure. All about dinosaurs was gone about half the time I visited the library. I asked my mother where I would keep my library card. Mom thought about it for a moment and said, Sweetheart, You'll probably have to get a wallet. A wallet? I asked. Mom smiled and nodded. And thus began my long slide into adulthood. I thought about getting a wallet on the drive home. Having a library card was exciting, but was it worth it? A wallet could get in my way if I was playing baseball. And I certainly couldn't have a wallet when I was waiting in the creek looking for snakes. On the other hand, One of the best parts of being at the library was that I was left alone. When Dad came home from the office, he always wanted to be left alone. Maybe being alone was one of the first signs you're a grown-up. I was pretty sure I wouldn't be the first person in my class to have a library card. People in my school read a lot, especially the girls, especially Claire Richards. Claire didn't just read horse books like the other girls. She had a list of the 100 most important books ever written, and she read them all. Claire was impressive in many ways. I knew I wanted to be more like Claire, even if it meant reading books that didn't have pictures. Back in the late 1950s, there were two kinds of long-distance phone calls. 
person to person, which was way too expensive for us, and station to station. Station to station was one step up from two tin cans and a string. Mom would set up a station to station call by mail. She wrote her family in Pennsylvania, confirming time and date. The call was always on a Sunday. Sunday was the cheapest day of the week to talk on the phone. At the appointed hour, our entire family would stand around the phone. Mom dialed and held the receiver equal distance from all of us, and we shouted our hellos to Granny and Uncle Ben and Ann Esther and Troop. On one of our calls, Ann Esther shouted back that she was sending all of us gifts, not because it was our birthday, but just because we were special. Two weeks later, we got a box from Pennsylvania filled with wrapped presents. Mom handed me mine. On top was a note from Esther, a wallet for your new library card. It was beautiful. It was reddish-brown leather with the word Mexico in raised letters stamped on both sides. Mom said Esther probably bought it on her trip to Mexico. All of my worries about baseball and the creek vanished. The beauty of the wallet made my decision for me. On the next visit to the library, I checked out my first book, All About Dinosaurs. I stood in line at the librarian's desk with excitement bordering on terror. When it was my turn, I handed her the book. She opened it, stamped the date underneath the hundredth stamped and crossed out dates. What is that? I asked. The librarian smiled and explained, that's the due date. That's when the book has to be back or you'll be fined. Five cents a day. What? Fined? No one told me this when I filled out the paperwork. The library had a dark side. Punishment. What would I do if I forgot the book or if I took it to school and lost it? Five cents a day? I didn't have that kind of money. I would have to get a job. What could I do? I could barely read. I looked down at all about dinosaurs with dread. Why did I check this book out? I'd already looked at all of the pictures several times. What a mistake. I always thought adulthood was shaped by opportunity. Now I saw that it was shaped by consequences. On the way home, Mom looked at me and smiled. Steppy doors, I see you checked out a book. Uh-huh. I continued to frown, looking out the window, watching my childhood pass me by. What's wrong, sweetheart? Mom, if the book is late, will I have to pay a fine? Libraries always charge for overdue books. Why? So you don't keep them. I looked down at All About Dinosaurs. The cover had the drawing of a duck-billed dinosaur walking into a swamp. Yeah, what Mom said was true. There are those who would keep this book forever if they could. People are untrustworthy. Mom tried to quiet my fears. When we get home, we'll find a place to keep your library book. Maybe on your bedside table with your radio or by the TV. Every time you finish reading it, you put it back in the same place and that way you'll never lose it. When we got home, I tried to find the perfect place for my book, but it wasn't easy. I was almost never indoors. I spent most of my time in the woods. When I was inside, I was either in the kitchen eating or in front of the TV set eating or in bed, and those were all very difficult places to read. I finally found a spot for my book in the den. I put it sideways on top of our set of World Book Encyclopedia. This location had a lot of positives. First, my book would be with other books, so I could remember it by association. And second, and most importantly... This bookshelf was in between the refrigerator and the television set, so it would always be in my line of sight. All About Dinosaurs had a home. And there it sat. I didn't even look at it the entire first week. I saw that having a book didn't mean I would read a book. It wasn't a matter of possession. It was a matter of time. This is a principle I've remembered throughout my life. In recent years, I've called this the country club fallacy. My friend belongs to a schwanky country club, and he always teases me about not being rich enough to be a member. And perhaps tease is not the right word. Ridicule may be better. He often ridicules me for not being rich enough to be a member. 
but I explained to him that even if I were rich enough, I would not join. And he asked me why not, and I told him it's the country club fallacy. We always think that what we do is a matter of money. No, it's a question of time. Where would I find the time to play three rounds of golf a week to make a membership worthwhile? Even if I were a millionaire, I couldn't buy an extra 15 hours a week. The country club fallacy applies to many things. Gym memberships, mountain bikes, even to buying a new suit. It isn't the money for the suit. But when will you wear it? If you're not going to the opera now, when are you going to start? My problem with All About Dinosaurs wasn't that I didn't love the subject matter. I wasn't accustomed to reading at home. Reading happened when Mom dropped us off at the library. Now that I brought the library home, I had to rethink my entire life. Rethinking your life is also subject to the country club fallacy. That takes time. I didn't rethink my life for almost the entire second week I had the dinosaur book. It continued to sit. It was Sunday afternoon. The next day, the book had to go back to the library or I would be fined. It was now or never. I pulled the book off the shelf. I looked at the picture of the duckbill vanishing into the ooze and had an amazing idea. What if I wrote my own book on dinosaurs? Then I wouldn't need one from the library. But how do I start? I'd never written a book before. And then I realized I was holding one in my hand. I opened All About Dinosaurs and read the first page. It said, The story of dinosaurs begins millions of years ago. That was a pretty good opening sentence. The only change I would make is by adding an extra millions to it. So it read, The story of dinosaurs begins millions and millions of years ago. I spent the rest of the day in my room writing. I was surprised how long it took to write something. I missed all of my Sunday Hercules movies that I usually watch with my mother. I heard her footsteps coming down the hall. She knocked on the door as she opened it. Footnote, in our home, a closed door never meant do not enter. A knock was just a notification that the door was being opened. Steppy doors, are you all right? We're missing all of our Henry movies. My mother used to call Hercules movies Henry movies because the first one we watched wasn't a Hercules movie. It was a Three Musketeers-type action movie in which the hero's name was Henry. His beloved would sigh throughout the film and say, Oh, Henry, which my mother found infinitely amusing. And from then on, Mom unexpectedly was stopped throughout her workday, sigh, and say to herself, Oh, Henry... And then she would shake her head and laugh and continue ironing or cooking dinner or driving us to school or kissing me goodnight. When the television changed the Sunday afternoon format to Hercules movies, my mother did not change. She continued to call them Henry movies. It stands as an example of the power of art on the individual to see the world they wish to see and not the world as it is. Steppy doors? You look so busy. What are you doing? I'm writing. Writing? Writing what? I thought I would write my own book, and then I wouldn't have to check them out from the library and pay a fine. This one is about dinosaurs. Mom sat down next to me on the floor. Can I see it, sweetheart? I proudly handed Mom my notebook with a fairly accurate transcription of the first part of the first chapter of All About Dinosaurs. Sweetheart, this sounds like the book you checked out. Are you copying it? No, I'm writing my own. It's just that a lot of time their words sound better. Mom nodded and browsed at my work. Hmm, ichthyosaur? That's a pretty big word. Yeah, dinosaurs have lots of big words. Do you know what an ichthyosaur is? It's a fish dinosaur. It has a long nose and a lot of teeth. Uh, that sounds scary. It is, Mom. My mother handed me back my notebook. You know, if you need the book longer, we can always check it out again. I can? Every two weeks. Then I may be able to finish my book after all. 
Mom brushed the hair out of my eyes and smiled. Well, I don't want to disturb you. You better keep working. And that's how I became a writer. Thanks to the Texas educational system in general and my second grade teacher, Miss Cooper, in particular, I didn't read much in school. Well, that's not completely true. I checked out a book on Julius Caesar from library class in fifth grade. I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much that when it was time to check it back in, I kissed it goodbye. The romance didn't end there. In bed at night, I talked to the memory of the Julius Caesar book. Before I fell asleep, I whispered, Are all books as good as you? Are you just so good because you're Julius Caesar? I never got a response. I don't remember using my precious library card growing up. I didn't read any of the 100 books on Claire Richards' list. I didn't read Johnny Tremaine like everyone else in class. Once I almost checked out a Betty Cavana book in library. The girls used to read them nonstop, and I thought if they saw me reading Going On 16, it would make me more popular. Roy Boland caught me in the checkout line. Dobo, what's that? He whispered urgently. Betty Cavana. You can't read that. I can't? No, Dobo, it's a girl's book. Put it back. Really? Yes. Only girls could read that. And don't let anyone see you put that back on the shelf. Okay. Thanks, Roy. Yeah, just stay away from that part of the library. At home, I began to read a little bit every day from our set of world books. I found a successful method of reading while watching television. Came home from school, turned on Jungle Gym, and ate a hostess treat and read the encyclopedia. The quality of the experience depended on which hostess treat my mother brought me. I found I could focus better if I ate a Twinkie. The least productive was the snowball. I was fairly illiterate when I got to college. I became a reader by chance. Wonderful Wes had a job reading to a very old, wealthy, blind woman. When Wes decided to quit, she asked me to take over. Twenty bucks for two hours. Two, three times a week? That's a lot of Slim Jim money. I became a mercenary. I never made this correlation before, but at the same time I returned to reading... I also returned to writing, also for money, a lot of money. I wrote papers for graduate students who had better things to do with their time. I charged 400 to $800 for a master's thesis and 1200 for a PhD dissertation. Boy, that's more than Slim Jim money. For that kind of money, I could call mom and tell her I had a real job. I already learned the basics of plagiarism from writing my dinosaur book. That gave me all the tools I needed to get through college. But when you plagiarize for others, you have to broaden your skill set. My first client was Lana Guggenholt. She was a college graduate. She had a job. She was happy. She just wanted a master's degree to qualify for a higher salary. It seemed like helping her was just the moral thing to do. Lana came over to my apartment to interview me for the job. You know, $400 is a lot of money, she said. Yes, I know. Well, for that kind of money, Stephen, I hope to get an A. She smiled at me with enormous charm. So, are you a good writer? I looked back at her with my version of enormous charm and said, That's not important. It's not? No. The question is, Lana, are you a good writer? Her smile registered a touch of confusion. I continued, Lana, the number one tip-off that someone is not the author of their own work is, obviously, when a student who can't write suddenly can. I don't want to write as well as I can write. I want to write as well as you can write. 
but maybe just a little bit better, just enough so your professor will think he or she is a good teacher. Lana nodded. I never thought of that. Good point. Yes, ma'am. So I want to read some of your past papers so I can get an idea of who you are and what you think matters. And most importantly, what kind of mistakes you make. Well, my specialty is spelling and grammar, but a lot of times I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, that's perfect, Lana, because I think I'm good at structure and ideas. I've got a plan. I'll do a first draft. You can read it, correct my spelling and grammar, you pay me half, and if you like how it's going, I'll do the rewrites and finish the paper for the rest of the money. Well, that's very generous of you, Lana said. And I think that's very generous of you. I could use the money. I got the job. Lana's paper wasn't as hard to do as I thought it would be. It was a lot like reading the world book after school, but instead of Twinkies, I snacked on Fritos and beer like a real writer. Lana enjoyed the process. She found pleasure in doing the work without having to do the work. She had ownership of the project, but still had time to watch her favorite television programs and eat ice cream. She introduced me to a couple of her friends, two young ladies in need of their thesis. They also already had jobs and just wanted more take-home pay. I met with them, got their writing samples, and before I knew it, I had acquired a stable of fine-looking MFA candidates. Working on three papers at a time was easier than I anticipated. The key factor was, I didn't care if the papers were good. In fact, I was pretty sure they wouldn't be. But I knew they would be good enough. And that removed all of the stress. I recognized that the desire for excellence goes in the oversized luggage department. You have to pay to take that with you. You can't carry it on every trip. You must be selective. My motto was, never try to be good when good enough is all you need. When my girlfriend Beth got home from class, I told her the news. College was finally paying off. In a matter of weeks, I would have over $1,000. What, do you think that's ethical? Beth asked. Well, of course it is. I, I don't understand the question. Beth stared at me as if I was being intentionally obtuse. Stephen, the purpose of having a master's degree is that it signifies you did the work. You have more understanding of a subject. You can pass that knowledge on to others. Yeah. But that isn't happening here, Beth said. Well, sure it is. No, it isn't. You're the only one getting the knowledge. Well, they could read my papers. But they won't. Exactly, I said. Beth looked at me with her squinched-up face like she always did when I said something that was too stupid to be believed. Beth, you're right. They won't read the papers. No one will. That's the point. It's impossible. Edmund Burke's theory of rhetoric is applied to the speeches of Edmund Muskie? Come on! How about this one? A statistical abstract of the use of transactional analysis is applied in fourth-grade classes in the Garland Independent School District. No one will read this stuff. The papers I'm writing are useless. They're not thin enough to be fly swatters. They're not thick enough to be doorstops. They're going into the trash. Somewhere. Soon. Either that or into a university library. I will get the money. My clients will get their money. Everyone will be happy except the poor professors who have to grade them, and it's their fault for getting jobs at a university. The real question is, what is being taught, right? The purpose of all education is problem-solving. These ladies had a problem. They found a solution, me. They did it quickly and effectively. That makes them masters. So you're sure no one will read the papers, Beth asked. Absolutely. That's a given. Well, I guess it's all right, as long as you're sure that what you're doing is just a waste of everybody's time. I promise, sweetie. My next client was a friend of the first three. She was working on a master's degree in theater with a twist. She didn't want a paper. She needed a play. Sue Ann came over to my apartment and sat in the clean chair I set aside for clients. She said, I'm a theater education major at Crockett State, but I have a minor in playwriting. 
I don't know why. I'd never written anything in my life. My professor says I could turn in a play rather than a regular thesis. A play? I asked. Yes, Sue Ann said. I thought it would be easier and more fun than a big paper with all those footnotes. She laughed. Well, what kind of play do you want to write? Well, did you see that wonderful Mark Twain tonight? With Hal Holbrook? Yes, I tell you, that man is a genius. Oh, yes, he is. So I was thinking I could do a Mark Twain play like that one. Yes, but Hal Holbrook's already doing Mark Twain play like that one. Right, but ours will be different. How? Ours will be a musical. A musical? Uh Uh-huh. You you mean like where Mark Twain sings? Right, and other people sing too, his friends, his parents, his wife. And there could be a sad song he sings when his daughter dies in the bathtub. So, let me get this straight. You want me to write the play and the music? That's right. Wow. Uh, Well, I've just written a few songs for my girlfriend. I'm not really a composer. Well, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll pay you $1,200. $1,200? Right. Sue Ann, I have a question. Yes? When I write graduate papers, I know no one will read them. If I write a play for you, especially a musical, I don't want it seen. You don't? No. I always thought, (laughs) I know this sounds crazy, but I always thought that someday I would write a play. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I write something good... I would want my name on it, not yours. Can you promise me you won't produce it? Oh, of course, sweetheart. Look, I'm just trying to get the grade. You know how hard it is. Write the play. I'll give it to my professor, and that's that. Well, thank you, Sue Ann. Thank you. And that's how I became a playwright. That night, Beth and I were lying in bed staring at the ceiling. You're writing a musical? Beth asked. Yeah, I said. Can you do that? Oh, I hope so, I said. I didn't even know you could write a play. Well, I wrote that one in Dick Ayers' class. Oh, you mean the one where the characters were all numbers? Yes. Well, Jim McClure said that wasn't very good. Well, Jim McClure says everything I do isn't very good. It's his form of affection. It's sort of like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, said Beth, except without the compliment. The numbers play was just a toss-off. I wrote it in a couple of hours. I'm not going to give away my best stuff for Dick Ayers' class. So what are you going to do for songs? Well, Beth, I know how to write music. I mean, I know what notes are. Well, that's a start, said Beth. I could play the piano and the guitar. And I've seen a lot of shows at the Dallas Summer Musicals. Fiddler on the Roof, The Sound of Music, those were good. At Theater 3, I saw The Fantastics. That was fantastic. I saw the movie The Music Man. Now, that was not only good, but it was set in the same century as Mark Twain. What if I wrote my version of the songs from those shows and not get sued? Right. And make them about Mark Twain. Right. How much are you getting paid for this? $1,200. Beth smiled and rubbed her hands together like a miser and sang in her Mississippi version of a German accent, Money make the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. The next morning I was getting the first stomach cramps that told me I may have gotten in over my head. And then I had a brainstorm. If I could write songs that sounded enough like the songs from famous musicals so people liked them, 
Why couldn't I do the same thing for an entire play? For the last couple months, I read writing samples from prospective clients so I could sound like them. What if I read good writing and used that as my sample? So then maybe I could write like a great playwright. And all I would have to do is change the names, make Hamlet Mark Twain and Ophelia Mrs. Mark Twain. As an experiment, I took three authors that I consider good. I read a play by Oscar Wilde, a poem by Swinburne, and a winner's tale by Shakespeare. And then I wrote short writing samples as if it were written by each of these authors. The results were impressive. None of the samples sounded like the original, but they all sounded better than me. Maybe I can make the Mark Twain play sound like Tennessee Williams wrote it, or Thornton Wilder, or even Mark Twain. Oh, it was right there in front of me the whole time. I began rereading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Innocents Abroad. I started writing. I was scribbling on my notebooks in the theater department green room when my former roommate Jim McClure walked up. Oh no, the mighty Pollock is writing again. Hopefully it's not a three-act version of the numbers play. No, Jim. Thank God. I'm trying an experiment. Jim, come here. Look at these writing samples. I handed Jim the paragraphs I wrote in the style of Oscar Wilde and Shakespeare. He looked at them and furrowed his brow. Okay, Jim, now here's a poem. I handed Jim the poem I wrote in the style of Swinburne. Jim, just reading this poem, who would you guess the author is? Uh, Chef Boyardee? Jim, Chef Boyardee on a three-day drunk. No? Jim, come on, I'm serious. It's Swinburne. Oh, dear. What are you up to, Rumi? Look, I was just thinking, what if we used our acting skills in writing? In Boleslavsky's The First Six Lessons, do you remember what lesson number six is? Uh, show up on time? No. Play the mind of the playwright. I love that one. And I know it's true. I felt it. The cosmic connection between the word on the page and the actor. What if the same thing is true in writing? Jim thought it over and smiled. Go on, Rumi. What if you could become a better writer by playing the mind of the authors you like? I pointed to the other two sample paragraphs. Okay, this one is by Oscar Wilde, and this one is Shakespeare. My tone is changed in each paragraph, in a good way. I have more wit in the Oscar Wilde paragraph, more poetry in the Shakespeare. Rumi, I could see the benefit of letting great writers influence us. That's what they do. I guess that happens all the time in writing, painting, music. Art is one of the few things that reach beyond the grave but you're still misguided. How so, Jim? You're picking the wrong writers. But they're the best. Yes, they are, but that's not the point. The question isn't how good are they, but how good are you? You will never be Shakespeare, and I don't mean that as an insult. No one is. No one will be. He's the greatest writer the English language will ever see. But it would be a mistake to look to someone that great as an influence. You just come off looking silly. Picking an influence to shape your work is an interesting challenge, but you have to be truthful. You're no Wilde. You're no Swinburne. You know who you could be? Who, Jim? Seriously, maybe Herman Hesse? Really? Oh, seriously. I, I, I mean, you're never going to be as good as he is, but you have that spiritual, cosmic, everyman thing going. Huh, I never thought of that. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Hesse's not funny enough. I got a better one. Who? Mark Twain. That was the defining quality of Jim McClure. He was inspirational in spite of himself. I began writing with a new passion. The more I wrote about Mark Twain, the more I loved him. I made a list of the important events of his life, and then I tried to find an excuse that would allow those events to be told, an event or decision where he had to review his life and sing. I wrote an opening song where Twain climbs on board a riverboat called Climb Up. I based it on We're Off from Canterbury Tales. 
I wrote a love song for Mark Twain and his wife called My Home in the Plains, My Home in the Mountains, based on Far From the Land, I Love Him, Fiddler on the Roof. I couldn't write a song about his daughter dying in the bathtub. Twain also had a son that died of diphtheria and another daughter that died of meningitis. It was so overwhelming that one night all I did was sit on the living room floor and cry. I finished the musical. I thought it was good. It was certainly better than Edmund Burke's theory of rhetoric as applied to the speeches of Edmund Muskie. It was short, which I've learned is often better than good. It was upbeat with Twain's wry observations on the world. Sadness was present, but always kept at a distance, the way I choose to see my own life. The day arrived. I handed the play over to Sue Ann. She gave me a check. We parted ways. I decided to get out of the education for hire business. Mark Twain taught me that life is surprisingly short. There's rarely a reason to settle for good enough. The true enemy is never failure. It's not honoring your potential. Postscript. 1995, I was shooting a wonderful show for CBS called Dweebs. Even though the show was canceled after 10 episodes, I thought it was charming, funny, and it was probably the prehistoric version of the Big Bang Theory. One episode featured a party with a lot of extras playing nerds. After rehearsing the scene, we took a break, and a man came up to me and said, Excuse me, Stephen? Uh, yes? Uh, I'm sorry, I have a question? Sure. You ever know a Sue Ann Evans? Yes. Wow. Yes, I did back when I was in college. So she does know you. And I thought she was just bragging. Yes, Sue Ann, she's a writer, producer, director down in Mississippi. You ever heard of the play Mark Twain on the River? Mark Twain on the River? Uh, maybe. It's a musical Sue Ann wrote about Mark Twain. It's the biggest riverboat show on the lower Mississippi, but she's been running it for 20 years maybe more. It's kind of corny, but it's one of the few real jobs actors could get in that part of the world. Everybody wants to be in it. But she says that when she was writing it, she gave a copy to you to read to see if you had any notes. Is that true? Well, well, I, I don't think I ever gave her any notes. Was the opening song Climb Up? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, man, I'll never forget that thing. I still hear it in my sleep. I think it's imprinted in my brain. Climb up, climb up. Yeah, yes, yes. Now, now I remember that song. I was in shock. I murmured, I can't believe it. Can't believe what? Well, that she produced the show? Oh, yeah, she did. She directed it, too. Oh, Sue Ann, she's got a lot of drive. Mark Twain has been raking it in for years. Of course, it doesn't have much competition, except for the gambling, and I guess it's cheaper than getting Tony Orlando and Dawn. Yeah, I guess. Well, Stephen, that show is why I'm here. It's why I'm in L.A. trying to be an actor. See, I played Mark Twain. I had such a good time, I figured, man, I'd give it a shot. I mean, what the hell? What's the worst thing that could happen? I'd have some laughs and go broke, right? Well, yeah, that's one of the options. So you have any advice for someone in his 40s just starting out in L.A.? I looked at the man's shining face. I'm sorry, what's your name? Carl. Okay, two things to remember about this business, Carl. Yes? It's impossible, Carl laughed. <laughs> yeah, so I heard, and, and the impossible happens every day.
That was Ghostwriter, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you ever look back on the last five or six decades of your life and think like, wow, I have actually made the impossible happen, like you were referencing at the end of that story? Yeah, well, the problem is we never know what the impossible really looks like. So Mm. oftentimes the things that we think are impossible aren't, and the things that we think are possible aren't. So so (laughs) we have a problem with reality, David. But I I was happy that in this case uh, I made some dreams come true. Indeed, indeed. Well, you're making dreams come true through these stories you're telling on this pod, Stephen. Uh, And you can also uh, see video versions of these stories at YouTube.com, right? Like, where where can people find video versions of your stories on YouTube? That would be at YouTube.com slash Tobofiles, and that's T-O-B as in boy O-F-I-L-E-S, the Russian spelling, youtube.com slash Tobofiles. And if you're enjoying the Tobolowsky Files, we would be so grateful if you would rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to it, as well as share about it on your social media. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files. You can find more episodes of the show at tobolowskyfiles.com. Until next week, we'll see you later. Adios.